Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Postal Service, citing higher costs beyond its control, is falling behind on plans to reach long-term financial stability. USPS reported yet another big loss for fiscal 2023. That's after Congress passed major reform legislation to improve its condition. But USPS leaders say the agency's best chance for improvement requires seeing a 10-year reform plan through to the end. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman is here with more. Jory, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. All right. So just how bad of a financial loss are we looking at for fiscal 2023? It's definitely not the kind of news that USPS was looking for here. USPS reported a $6.5 billion net loss for fiscal 2023. It's underwhelming for a couple of reasons under its 10-year Delivering for America plan. This was as early as the agency expected it could start to reach break-even status after years and years of uh, severe net losses. It's also underwhelming because just a year ago in fiscal 2022, uh, it ended that year with a $56 billion net income. Now that is almost exclusively because Congress that same year passed major postal reform legislation that was supposed to put the postal service on firmer financial footing, erase billions of dollars in its uh, balance sheet, and just generally give it a better chance of long-term stability here. Now, we heard from Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. He gave a brief on all this before the USPS Board of Governors, and he says that, you know, given the bad news, he recognizes it's bad news, but he says that, you know, this 10-year plan was drafted at a time when USPS was still reeling from the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he does say that there are signs that USPS can see this plan through. While we are not happy with this result, we cannot lose sight of the downward trajectory the Postal Service faced in the fall of 2020 after years of neglect and willful indifference by its stakeholders and custodians prior. Postmaster General Lewis DeJoy there, so you can hear he's a little bit upset as everybody seems to be. How does this match up with how USPS thought it would do this year? Right. So this was a year where it hoped it could potentially break even. A couple of reasons why it didn't get there. Two areas of costs that just really blew up beyond what USPS had projected on here. One of them, a very common refrain here, inflation. It saw $2.6 billion in costs attributed to inflation that it didn't anticipate, and about $3 billion in costs that it paid into the civil service retirement system that is common to all federal employees. It it affects a bucket of uh, some of its older postal employees. And so that is just another area where the postal service just saw higher costs than it anticipated. And so this is uh, a challenge because USPS actually saw better revenue this year than it thought it was going to, but it's just seen a a more uphill battle than it uh, initially anticipated when it drafted this plan. So it's going to need some help, it looks like here. What is it asking of Congress and the White House? And what tools does it need to solve this problem? Maybe once and for all, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll see. It's asking regarding that civil service retirement system. They are asking the Biden administration and Congress for a fix to that. Now, the Office of Personnel Management is responsible for administering those benefits to USPS employees, and it ultimately calculates the kind of funding that USPS needs to pay into that fund. 
USPS and its inspector general office, they both claim that the agency has overpaid into that fund. It's just a long going refrain here that that's just had no resolution up until this point. But USPS is still beating that drum and saying that that would be something that would make a difference here. Now, he was talking to the USPS Board of Governors. What was their reaction like when they heard this news? I think they were similarly disappointed by the results. This is not the kind of news that they wanted to hear, but they recognize that this 10-year reform plan that DeJoy has championed, they are still behind that plan, and they ultimately see that as the kind of plan that the agency needs going forward to you know, see better days ahead. One Governor Dan Tangerlini, who formerly was the head of the General Services Administration, he said that, you know, about a quarter of the way into this plan, they haven't seen the kind of results that they were hoping for. But he says, we just got to see it through. We got to redouble our efforts. We also heard from another member of the board, Amber McReynolds. She said that there are some areas of concern that financially USPS uh, hasn't met its targets, but says that give credit where credit is due, that the agency has made some progress stabilizing its workforce and really making some long overdue improvements to its infrastructure. Multiple things can be true at once. We can be achieving parts of the DFA and not others, particularly the financial stability goals and service delivery. We can be strengthening our workforce and while also still struggling to hire in some rural areas and challenging areas of the country, which has a direct and negative impact on service. We can be hitting milestones in our environmental goals while also still identifying areas of opportunity. It's Amber McReynolds, member of the USPS Board of Governors. We're speaking with Federal News Network reporter Jory Heckman. All right, so where do we go from here? They are where they are. What does DeJoy have planned for USPS going forward? In summary, they're going to look to increase revenue and decrease costs for the year ahead for FY 2024. DeJoy says that USPS will try to grow its share of the package business where it competes with folks like UPS and FedEx. Uh, it's trying to grow its package revenue by about a billion dollars, which is going to be a challenge given everyone else in that sector. They're also looking to cut about 28 million work hours, try to get all this work done with fewer of those hours uh, from its workforce. Uh, labor costs are a huge portion of its overall costs. And it's also going back to McReynolds' comments, trying to modernize its infrastructure here, just try to be more streamlined with its operations. It's going to try to open nearly a 100 sorting and delivery centers across the country. They are these mega centers where they merge together the delivery operations, letter carriers, and its processing facilities all under one roof. Uh, and it's also going to roll out 30,000 new delivery vehicles. This is a lot of moving pieces. DeJoy did tell the board that this is not a perfect science, that this is more of an art than a science, and that you know some things will go awry, but that the agency will ultimately fine-tune those problems when they come up. The road to success and the scope of the changes we are compelled to make will invariably result in some disruption on any given week, in any given area, for any given service. However, I can assure the American people and our customers that we will respond rapidly to correct for the impacts to service that might result from these complicated changes. And it's such a large infrastructure and established agency. I'm sure there are many other things that are probably popping up for Lewis DeJoy, not just budgetary problems. What else does USPS have going on in the form of other challenges? 
Yeah, well, as far as other challenges here, the board will soon operate with less than its full strength. It will still have a quorum, but the terms of two of its members, William Zollers and Lee Moak, they will expire this December. And so far, we haven't seen President Joe Biden name anyone to take their place. So there'll be those two vacancies on the board. It's just fewer people at that board uh, making decisions at a time where a lot of decisions are being made. You know, one other thing here is as we look ahead to fiscal 2024, the rest of the year, DeJoy did say that this is also another year where USPS will not break even. This was uh, something that they had hoped for, but this is given the current state of where things are as far as costs, just something that's not going to happen. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thank you for the update as always. Thanks, Eric. And you can follow all of Jory's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.